in it about what you can do to a substitute preacher, kind of like a substitute teacher, all the pranks that you can play on him. So I'll thank you ahead of time for not treating me like the substitute teacher, preacher. Um, it is tough coming in. You know, Pastor Paul is very good at, at his job. And so um, as a substitute preacher, hopefully um, you'll just set the bar a little bit lower. That's my, <laughs> that's my main hope here. But um, I say that tug in cheek because um, in reality, this is not uh, a substitute word of God. And that's the main um, uh, hope for this to be of any value. And so um, my goal is to put the word of God in front of us for all of our consideration um, and then to get out of the way. So that's my goal. With that, let's uh, turn to the Word of God. Um, the passage this morning is found in Matthew chapter 28. Pretty familiar passage, I think, to, to most people, but really some amazingly profound truths in there. Um, so I'm really looking forward to uh, talking about these with you. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Chapter 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is light to our path, which teaches us truths that are amazing to behold. We pray that you would uh, bless us this morning as we uh, look into this uh, part of your gospel and pray that your spirit would go with us, that we would understand and apply these truths. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, when we first started coming to Branch of Hope back in 2008, um, Pastor Paul was doing something like a a 12-part sermon on this uh, short passage of the Bible. Uh, And I think it was some kind of foundational or springboard text as well to a series on theonomy. Um, I know that all sounds totally unlike Pastor Paul, but this actually happened. Um, And uh, I'm sure the series had some uh, impact and, and uh, shaped me, theologically speaking. But I don't really remember any one thing from uh, the sermon. But I, what, I, what I do remember, of course, this was 13 years ago. It's not a slight on the pastor. Um, but what I do remember is every week we read this passage. And just reading this week after week, the truths, the amazing truths found in this passage uh, just kind of washed over me until this became one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and um, I think it uh, has a message that, quite frankly, the church and the world really has yet to fully grapple with, so I think it's important for us to grapple with it uh, today. I chose this pas- passage particularly also because I'm giving this exhortation as I'm being considered for a, uh, uh, to be a ruling elder in this local church, and so uh, in this passage, Christ gives uh, direct charge for what the instructions for the church are to be. And also it clearly describes one of the most foundational themes in all of the Bible. So I hope this is uh, uh, an encouragement to you. I, um, for any ministry that I'm involved in, I want to make sure this is, is front and center, and I encourage you guys to do that as well. 
So, in this passage, we'll focus on four main things. The setting, uh, briefly, Jesus' authority, the Great Commission in light of that authority, and then the commission itself at the end. So first, let's look at the setting in uh, verses 16 and 17. We see just above our passage in verse 10 um, that the resurrected Jesus had met the women and directed them to tell the apostles to meet him at some point in Galilee. But remember that the initial resurrection appearances were in and around Jerusalem, um, including to the women around the tomb, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, and then to the apostles the, uh, in Jerusalem that night on the first resurrection Sunday. Um, and then likely again a week later on Sunday, this time with uh, the 11 plus, uh, or with the disciples plus Thomas there. But now, uh, this meeting with Christ is a specifically called meeting, and it's up in Galilee, uh, 80 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, Galilee was referred to earlier in the book of Matthew as he's citing Isaiah as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so there's likely strong significance in, th- in the uh, Gentile association of this location that helps, us to emphasize, or helps Jesus to emphasize um, the point that he's going to be teaching. Some have also surmised that this is perhaps um, where that appearance to the 500 uh, appeared and uh, that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Perhaps that's true. Um, the location being outside in a big open field, it being a specifically called meeting and having special meaning behind it, maybe that supports that, but that's a bit speculative. In any case, um, we know that the 11 are there. And it says, um, when they saw him, they worshipped him. So um, let's not skip over that too quickly. Um, Here we see the righteous impulse of Jesus' followers to worship him. And we know this is righteous because Jesus doesn't tell them to stop, as we see so many other times um, throughout the scriptures, when these amazing, angelic, holy, um, uh, but created Um, beings came and immediately told them to stop worship. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, And this theme of seeing the risen Christ and immediately worshiping is seen multiple times. You see it earlier just above in this chapter in uh, verse 9, and then even in that appearance I referenced before um, with Thomas, where after finally seeing Jesus, Thomas immediately responded, crying out to Jesus as his Lord and his God. And then speaking of Thomas, it's interesting to see uh, this account saying that some doubted. Um, And this may be collapsing various events so that it's even referring to uh, Thomas's doubting, but more likely this refers to some kind of doubting or disbelief um, that they had as they saw Jesus here in this meeting in Galilee. We're not told specifically what this doubting was about, uh, whether about the resurrection Uh, its meaning, or maybe even the appropriateness of worshiping Jesus. Uh, But whatever the case, it's amazing that this description of doubt is followed by one of uh, the most powerful and striking descriptions of Jesus' authority. And this is one of the key points I want to drive home this morning, so let's look at that. In verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. So it's very important that we understand here what Jesus is talking about and also what he's not talking about. This is not describing an authority that Jesus, as the Son, the second person of the Trinity, 
as God has and always has had. No, this is referring to his unique, newly installed messianic office as the second Adam, having fulfilled all he was to accomplish, risen from the dead, and king over all creation. Uh, Francis Turretin, the great 17th century reformer, did a good job of describing this distinction. And he goes back and forth between authority uh, Jesus had as um, the son, and then also as he had as this risen Messiah. So don't get confused by that. Christ, indeed, as Logos, was from eternity with the Father. But he cannot, on that account, be said to have sat down at the right hand of God. He reigned as son over the kingdom of nature, but not as God-man over the economic kingdom. Christ as mediator can be said in a certain sense to have sat down at the right hand of God, as without flesh, even before the incarnation, thus from the beginning of the world, because he always was head and king of the church who governed and defended it. But with flesh, he sits only after his passion and resurrection. He had indeed the right of the kingdom from the hypostatic union, but he did not obtain the actual possession until after his ascension. So this authority is not the eternal authority and sovereignty as the Son of God, but rather a turn in history where there's a new authority that has been given to the mediator, the God-man who was dead and now lives, whose sacrifice was accepted by the Father and who had inherited a kingdom and begun to reign. So why does this matter? Um, is, are we just being, you know, uh, pinheaded the, uh, theologians who like to split hairs um, and, you know, while the rest of the world does the stuff that, that really matters. Uh, no, and, and we don't act like that in all the rest of our lives. We think authority matters. You know, when we have a new president or a new governor or perhaps the same governor um, or, uh, you know, a new, a new boss at our job, um, all those things, we really care about that because authority in our life matters. Um, but how much more when we're talking about the one who uh, has ultimate authority, who reigns over us and all of our enemies as well? So this is highly um, applicable and relevant for our lives. Um, and another way to describe what's happening here is uh, as maybe more, distri- more striking within the church, and particularly to uh, dispensationalist ears, is that in, um, this is the inauguration of Christ the son of David, now enthroned as king, reigning over all, and it happened following the resurrection. This point is disputed by many Christians, strangely enough, um, but it's amazing how clearly the apostles spoke um, of Christ attaining the promised kingship and throne of David after his resurrection and ascension. So first let's think about the, this claim in light of the Old Testament. Let's look at a few of the key prophetic descriptions of the Messiah's kingship. Um, I'm going to select three key Old Testament passages here, and then we'll also look at how the apostles applied those um, to what was going on with Jesus. Yeah, first here, Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. So we see that Psalm 2, um, the foretold establishment of God's son, the king, is given here, who is to rule over all, and as a fundamental part of this rule, is to inherit the nations. 
Let's look at Psalm 110, verses 1 to 2, and I encourage you also to look through the rest of these passages as you have time as well, because there's a lot more there of just the, the uh, oomph of what's going on with this, the kingship that's described. Psalm uh, 110, verses 1 to 2, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, And here the father is saying to David's Lord, a.k.a. the Messiah, also known as Jesus, uh, that he will sit at the father's right hand as ruler and that this right hand ruling will result in the complete destruction of his enemies. And this, by the way, is the most oft-cited Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. So that alone ought to tell us something of how the apostles thought of these prophecies in the life of what was and, and the actions um, and results of what Jesus had done. And then the last Old Testament passage um, I want to read here is Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I think most of you have been here for um, our pastor's sermon series uh, through the book of Revelation in part two of his recent teaching on John's uh, coming with the clouds uh, section in Revelation 1-7 did a good job of parsing out the different uh, biblical texts that talk about the clouds in the language and trying to unwind some of the confusion of where where those apply. So um, I'll point you to that for a really good, more detailed covering of all the different cloud language. But I hope this sermon is a good corollary to that portion Um, But I also hope putting this Daniel 7 passage next to these other passages we've read and what Jesus is saying uh, and the apostles are saying in the New Testament um, really helps to locate where this Daniel passage is in time. The son is approaching the father, and again, this is a monumental event in history. This doesn't refer to the son's inheritance as a member of the Godhead, but as the victorious God-man. Most notably demonstrated, we learn in the New Testament, in completing God's task for him in redemption, culminating in his resurrection from the dead. And as in our other passages, a kingdom of all pervasive rule and might, with nations as his inheritance, is given to him. So um, I won't read these passages now, but here's a few other Old Testament passages if you uh, have time today to look at that uh, similarly have this theme. Psalm 89, which we read a portion of earlier in our call to worship. Isaiah 9, 6-7. Jeremiah 23, 5-6. Amos chapter 9, verses 11-12. And Zechariah chapter 9, 9-10. and 10. So look at those for further promises of this kind. So now, uh, tying this back to our passage, when Christ says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, when he speaks of the nations as being his, these are not just abstract statements that are hanging out in the middle of of nowhere. The idea of the Great Commission is not merely about going and saving souls. It's certainly, that is a part of it. And it's not just generally uh, some benevolent act of God. 
Um, we're looking here into the, the, the big gears of history, uh, you might say, and even, even that gears language is kind of uh, ill-equipped because it's too, too mechanistic. These are these, th- this is the providence of God and the big themes, these huge themes that even uh, angels longed to look into, we're told. But these claims are rooted in much-anticipated Old Testament prophecy. Christ is claiming this messianic reign, and he's claiming that this reign has begun. Further, he's explaining that his apostles and his church will have a key role in realizing uh, the promised inheritance. So we looked at several important Old Testament passages, and let's look now at uh, the united voice of the New Testament as well. Um, and I've got three of those passages we'll, we'll read through. This first one's a little bit longer, but I think it's really important to, again, think through the, those Old Testament passages we were talking about and how um, uh, what Jesus has done fits within those, according to the apostles. So Acts 2, 29 to 36. This is Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost. Um, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter cites here Psalm 110, which, which we just read, and he applies it to Jesus. And then he identifies the resurrection and the ascension to God's right hand as the key markers of God's installing this king. Um, you know, it's hard to think of a psalm more descriptive of the messianic reign of the Son of God than Psalm 110. And this calling up of Psalm 110 uh, it's meant to make the hearers invoke more than just these two uh, verses from the psalm as well. It's really a reference to all of that, that psalm. Um, and I think Peter would be uh, not just confused, but horrified if he saw how the church uh, today, how ready our uh, believers are to tone down or ignore his language so, so that the Davidic reign of Christ can be put to a future inauguration. One must wonder how much clearer, what other language could the apostle use to claim that these promises have happened already? Um, Let's look uh, at another passage here, Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, you see this this new thing that has happened in the resurrection regarding uh, this authority. Um, And we see this 
uh, calling to mind specifically those promises of Psalm 2 and um, Daniel 7. And then the last New, pa- New Testament passage I'll read here uh, is from 1 Corinthians 15, this one from verses 23 to 26. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to, the Father, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul still yet even more clearly lays out the program regarding the reigning of Christ uh, and its purpose and its end. His reign is going on now. And then when he returns, it'll be the end, he says. And between now and then, he's reigning for the purpose of destroying all of his enemies, and the last of which is death will be destroyed at his coming when all his people are resurrected. The language is astounding in its clarity and the logic of showing where we are in the movie and and where we're headed. Um, That stone from Daniel 2 has struck the mountain, or struck the um, uh, image, and uh, the mountain is growing and uh, nothing can now stop its growth. So I'll also give a few additional uh, New Testament passages here for uh, further consideration of the apostles' claiming of this uh, reigning of, of Christ happening now. Look at Acts 13, 32 to 33, Acts 15, 12 to 18, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 5, Hebrews chapter 10, 12 to 13, two more, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, and 1 Peter 3, 21 to 22. I would say if you're questioning these things in any way, really take the time to look up these passages. Because again, the apostles are very clear in what they're saying has happened. Um, I'm trying to avoid making my sermon just me reading a bunch of uh, passages, but I think it is really meaningful when there's this word event word kind of uh, uh, structure or word act word. Um, Reformed theologians have talked about that uh, for some time, the way that before uh, the event happens, here we talked about in the, with Christ's uh, redemption in the Old Testament prophecies, God is saying through his prophets, this is what's going to happen. Then there's Jesus coming, doing the actual acts. That's followed up by the uh, apostles that Jesus sends to say, this is what happened to explain it. Um, so I think it has an extra punch when we, when we see what's going on in, in that, through that lens. Um, and it helps us to not only promulgate the message, but realize that we're, we're a part of this. Um, and so recognizing that this is a new turn in history where Christ has been installed as king, um, what should that do in our thinking? Uh, there are four aspects of this that I believe are important to emphasize for the church today. So first... Uh, it's all-pervasiveness, the all-pervasive aspect of this authority. Um, Notice that there's no corner to go where this reign does not exist and hold sway. All authority, there's no subject, no field, no club, no sphere where Christ does not legitimately have supreme authority. That's what he said. That means there's no area of life where we can thumb our noses at his authority with impunity. 
Second, this authority is not just all-pervasive, but it is also so on earth. It's especially notable that Christ claims to have all authority on earth for a couple reasons. First, this doesn't seem to be exactly what we see when we look around. But understand that the progressive nature of, uh, of the growth of the realization of Christ's kingdom where, you know, think of the parables. We see this in parable after parable, this growth aspect. Um, it should never take away from the actual truth of his present reign. So that, as Psalm 2 indicates, there are those who would oppose the reigning Messiah, but they are all warned of the certain consequences of this opposition. Also, this should be emphasized because we live in a secular age, and we live in an age where the church has adopted these secular tenets. Secularism says we aren't to make recourse to Christ outside of our churches and our hearts. But the scriptures say that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Spiritualizing Christians say that Christ reigns with authority in the church, merely in the spiritual kingdom. But Christ says, all authority has been given to me on earth. This does not mean that there are no legitimate man-made authorities, but it does mean that all those authorities operate under Christ and are answerable to him for their deeds and their misdeeds. It means that Christians can and should rightly both expect governments to explicitly submit to Christ and should, as they're able, advocate for the government to do this, for this submission. The church should prophetically speak to this responsibility of the government. This does not mean that Christians should not be good citizens, quite the opposite. Okay, and then thirdly, a third aspect of this authority is that it is in heaven. And sometimes we just kind of assume that, I think, with the last point, that spiritualizing of these things. But there's more to that I want to bring out. Um, We see from the foregoing passages that this in heaven does not merely refer to the reigning of Christ in the church, though it, it certainly does include that. No, more than that, he has all authority over all dominions. The uh, 1 Peter 3 passage that I referenced before, uh, it says, angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And Psalm 82 is also a fascinating passage um, to consider in this regard, as they're uh, angelic beings that are condemned by God, and then after their subjugation, God inherits the nation's. Um, I recognize there's some controversy of who these beings are, and we could maybe talk about that in the Q&A, but I think they're pretty clearly angelic beings. Um, So, again, we'll talk about that more later. Um, But a fascinating passage, nonetheless, in this regard. Uh, Additionally, Colossians 2.15 teaches that in Christ's death, he disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities. So a very critical part of this new authority is that in his role as the triumphant God-man, Christ rules over powerful spiritual authorities and is plundering their house. And then related to that, uh, the last thing is this authority inherits the nations. The immediate context or results of the foundational Old Testament texts that we talked about speak of Jesus ruling over and inheriting these uh, nations. And so as the the triumphant God-man, the spoils are the nations of the earth. We saw this clearly in Psalm 2 and Daniel 7 above. And uh, maybe it's this growth industry nature of the inheritance 
that as much of, uh, of any of these aspects of his kingdom were clearly meant to be immediately real, but also progressively uh, brought to fruition. The Father says to the risen Christ, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Not to be confused with Satan, who offered Christ the uh, nations if he would just bow before him, uh, an illegitimate uh, offering of the nations to Christ. But regarding this progressive inheritance, think of how Christ's reign is described in the Psalm 110 passage we read. This is a rule in the midst of enemies. And so the entire point of this promised kingship is not a lack of opposition, but success in the face of opposition and a success that results in the inheritance of the nations of the earth. So we see that Christ's reign is all-pervasive. It's earthly. It's heavenly, um, including principalities and powers, and it results in the inheritance of the nations. As Psalm 2 says, All the kings of the earth are put on notice. I have set up my king. All right, part three. Let's look at um, how, in light of this authority that Christ has, how does this have anything to do with the Great Commission, which flows right after it? It's kind of a preamble to that Great Commission. Um, this, uh, uh, the Lord gives this commission because of this authority. So most, evan- most evangelical Christians, I think, are very familiar with the go-therefore formulation of the Great Commission, but we don't often think there, uh, very much about what that therefore is there for in this case. We just kind of zoom right past that. But of course, it's right on the heels of these claims of authority that we've just been talking about. So let's tease that out a bit. In what ways are the truths of verse 18 foundational to this commission? First, it is the fact of Christ's inaugurated kingship that establishes the rightfulness of his inheritance. Up until this point, there was the uh, promise of the Messiah that would come and inherit the nations and uh, bring all men to himself. But it was merely a, a longed-for future hope up until this point rather than a present reality. But after the re- resurrection, as we saw these claims by the apostles, Christ then says, the time is now. Therefore, I'm sending you to bring in this inheritance, which is rightfully mine. So the Great Commission is the means of his kingdom expanding into completeness. Into completeness. Um, it's the, the peopling of the city of God. Second, and building on that first point, evangelism and discipleship tie directly to Christ's claims of authority and kingship because this conversion is the mechanism for the kingdom growth. For the progressive realization of Christ's reign on earth, Spiritual conversion must go, for, must go first. It's the gospel that converts sinners and makes them clean, makes them willing, and as Colossians 1 says, delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us in the kingdom of the beloved Son. The primary mechanism of overcoming enemies is in, in this reign is by the power of Christ's sword, that is, by his word. So third, this therefore is there because Christ's authority over, it is Christ's authority over all that guarantees the result. You think of what a hostile world Christ was sending his apostles into. This would be really foolhardy and cruel without the verse 18 there. But as it stands, he sends them as his emissaries. 
he who holds all authority and all the realms that he would be sending them into. And this is the fact that gives us comfort and all his people comfort throughout the ages as we suffer all manner of peril and trials as they do this discipling that he commanded them. This all-authoritative reign of Christ is not only focused on gaining his inheritance, but on destroying the works of the devil to make this commission possible. Isn't it astounding when you think of the promise to Peter in the Gospels that Jesus gave? We talked about building his church in a way that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we usually think of hell not prevailing against the church, meaning that they won't ultimately went out against uh, the church. The church is going to kind of barely, is going to make it through. But that would um, uh, but recognize that this is the gates of hell that are not to prevail here. So that is all that would keep out Christ and his authority to keep them out from advancing. That will not prevail. And so um, Christ is able to completely plunder even all of the devil's house through this authority that he has. So based on Christ's authority, this commission is not tentative or a wishful request, but a knowing command of the literally all-powerful Lord. And by the way, this doesn't mean that we're some kind of Pollyannas in all of this, where we uh, pretend that there's no opposition and everything's a cakewalk. No, people, people actually die doing this stuff. Don't forget that um, all, nearly all of the apostles that he was talking to at this point would die via martyrdom doing this. Um, but of course, this was the risen Christ who was giving them this command and talking to him about these things. That is, it was uh, he gained his kingship through death and through the resurrection, and he still ordains that even through obedience in the face of suffering and death, the full flowering of his kingdom would come. Okay, uh, lastly, let's look at the commission itself. A few brief points on on what the commission describes here. So, um, looking at verse 19, we should also see that Christ doesn't simply say to go evangelize. Um, It's not that this isn't a critical part of of what we're to do, um, but that's not the language that he uses here. Um, The language is an imperative form of the verb mathetuo, to disciple, make disciples, not ask people to invite Jesus into their heart. Um, I think this is significant both for how we are to take the gospel to the world and how we are to act in the church. First, in the uh, evangelistic enterprise, we're not trying to get a person merely to pray a prayer. That's not what Jesus told his apostles to do but rather to submit to the lordship of Christ and to follow him. And then second, in the life of the church, it's not sufficient just to be a a, uh, Christian who walks in the door. You are to be a disciple of Christ, to follow his word. And it's particularly the responsibility of the elders in the church to shepherd the members so there isn't a stagnation um, of this spiritual life or a seed that doesn't go into, put roots down into the ground and, and therefore dies. Okay, next he talks about baptizing them. It's amazing that in these brief words of perhaps the most critical charge or commissioning that's ever been given, um, baptizing them is front and center. 
If you were uh, putting forth the top three or top five things you want to push forward for, this is what Christianity means, would you come up with, with baptizing them? Um, I don't know that I naturally would, but this is what Christ does. And his top two or three things that he says, baptize the, the nations. Now, up until this point in the New Testament, um, the main baptism uh, to be discussed was John's baptism. Um, and this baptism, just like John himself, was a, was a forerunner of Christ and his kingdom. And when we see John, um, you know, in the opening pages of the New Testament, calling people to be baptized, if we want to understand what that baptism was all about, uh, the first question we ought to ask is, why, why did no one ask him questions? All right, yeah, we'll be baptized. What's baptism? Um, it's because this was not new, right? There were various forms of baptism uh, in the Old Testament economy, both baptisms of people and baptisms of things that were being consecrated or set apart to God. And so um, it's beyond our scope here to do a complete survey of the Old Testament uh, descriptions of baptisms, although that's a, that's a valuable thing to do. But um, one important takeaway for uh, understanding this passage, though, is that these baptisms were, uh, consecrate, were generally a consecrating action for God's people, the Jews. Here, though, on this mountain in Galilee of the Gentiles, as king of the world and inheritor of the nations, Christ commands this baptism to be applied to the disciple Gentiles, too. And so a big part of the growing God's kingdom to the inheriting of the Gentiles is the setting apart and making holy of those previously unclean. As God had told Peter, what God has made holy, do not call uncommon, or do not call common. And let me just give two more thoughts uh, briefly regarding the baptism portion. One of the key aspects of baptism is that um, it's a baptism into something or someone. There's a curious passage in Acts 19 where some of the early disciples um, had only been baptized into John's baptism. And upon Paul's explanation that John's baptism and teaching were pointing to faith in Christ that was needed, um, they were baptized into Jesus' name too. And so there's an important aspect of baptism that has to do with our identity. To be a baptized into Jesus is to be identified with Christ. And tying this to what we see above about this kingdom growth plan of transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to Christ's kingdom involves a, a swapping of sides, as it were. And so baptism is a big part of this swap. And then secondly, it's striking that the, the formula given for baptism here is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a, a powerful statement um, of the Trinity um, right here on Christ's lips as he sends his apostles forward to baptize. Um, here uh, we, we know that Christ teaches of one God throughout all of his ministry. And here we see the three persons of the Trinity distinguished, but with parity listed and this new identity of all those who would inherit the kingdom of uh, God. Um, and we shouldn't see this, I think, in, you know, in light of this, we shouldn't see this, the Trinity as kind of a, an oddball, uh, kind of peculiar and quirky um, doctrine that's out there. From the start of Christ's kingdom, 
from the establishment of his New Testament church, all of this kingdom's citizens are immediately connected to and identified with this triune God. And I, and I think that's noteworthy. Okay, uh, lastly, and here I cut a large part of this uh, down for time, but I couldn't completely get it out, but be thankful I cut most of it out. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think you, I had to highlight this, um, but please, again, the Q&A, if you want to follow up on this more, please do. Um, uh, notice what the content of the discipling is. Um, we talked about this a little bit with the not merely praying a prayer, but he tells them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So what is that? Is that um, you know, the, uh, the golden rule? So go teach them the golden rule and that's it? Um, no, I think it's pretty well-defined content. We have the teaching of Christ in the, the Gospels, um, the teachings uh, of Christ through the sending of his apostles and the rest of the New Testament writings, which were directly commissioned by Christ. Uh, we have the teaching of Christ in the Old Testament law, Refer back to the, the Trinitarian uh, doctrine we just talked about. Um, and then also, um, you think of Christ teaching in the Gospels as well about his upholding of the law, that not a jot or a tittle would be removed. And so you see a law-honoring um, emphasis is also on this short list of what Christ commands his church when you're to go into the world and build this church and this kingdom. This is the message you're to take. And um, that made me think of Isaiah 42 uh, in light of this, thinking of how the Messiah describes, uh, or the, the Messiah's reign is described. It says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So, in closing, I have just a few questions for uh, personal consideration. In light of this uh, clear description of Christ's inaugurated kingdom, where he has all authority on heaven and on earth and is in, in the process of destroying his enemies and inheriting the nations, do you live in this world? Now, uh, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after the inauguration of Christ, do you live as if there was a big change in history that happened, uh, that what Christ said is true? Is the world fundamentally different uh, in your mind than it was uh, fundamentally different after Resurrection Sunday than it was before it? That's what Christ's claim is uh, here. Um, or are you like C.S. Lewis's uh, Puddle Glum? Do you guys know uh, Puddle Glum from the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the lo- most lovable pessimist in literature? Um, you know, he was summoned by Aslan on important business, and he knew right away, you know, what, what it was. He said, what is it? Is the king dead? Has an enemy landed in Narnia? Is it a flood or dragons? That was his, um, you know, immediately, it's something bad. Are we like that? You know, obviously, um, you know, the problem is in a world where Christ reigns in the midst of his enemies for the purpose of progressively destroying them, we can rightly see enemies and floods and dragons under every rock. But the critical distinction is that this world with devils filled is a fundamentally different world, as Christ emphatically declared. So even the dragons are in Christ's crosshairs. Um, If you live and think and act as though you live in an out-of-control world that's been handed over to the evil one, 
May I suggest to you that you haven't fully grappled with the significance of Jesus' words in this passage and many other passages that we've seen as well. Um, Are you one who's heralding this risen king, calling men to repent and to be baptized and to observe all of Christ's commands? We're all to be about doing that business. Are you one who has never been baptized or become one of Christ's disciples who have not identified with the risen king? The one who has all authority, who disciples the nations, bids you to come. And um, are you a baptized one who doesn't listen to the voice of your Lord, who does not care to observe all he commands? Recognize your Lord's authority and his expectations for his disciples. And finally, but far from least, the uh, all-sovereign king promises that as his followers go, and make disciples of all the nations, he will be with them even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your powerful truths that give us all hope. Cause us to live in light of the kingdom and all pervasive authority of Christ. By your spirit, teach us to obey all your laws. Move us, your people, to faithfully follow this call. Lord, continue to grow your kingdom and make your name great in all the earth. We ask that you would use even our poor wills and actions to bring this about for the building up of your church and the sake of your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.